So in the early 2000s, we did not have smartphones. Um, you guys remember those days? Dark days. Dark days. Uh, at this time in life, GPSs were slowly coming along. Like only really rich people had GPSs. If they had one, it was like, whoa, you are very wealthy. And they often didn't work. But the, the life I lived, and maybe you lived the peasant life like I did, we had this thing called MapQuest. And for the price of one entire ink cartridge, depending on your trip, you could find your way to wherever you wanted to go. What a time to be alive. How the heck did we get by? But nowadays, I use Google Maps. Um, multiple route options, easy and intuitive user experience. And my favorite thing is you can search on route for restaurants, where you're going to eat, what you want to see. My love of food is well documented here. I won't bore you with how much I love food. But one of the things I found so helpful about Google Maps is even on our trip to, to St. Louis this week, you can plot ahead. You can think ahead. Where's the closest Chipotle? Where is Chick-fil-A? Where is Cava? Has anyone been to Five Guys? Unreal. So I was in the back seat. Kevin's driving for eight days straight. And we're plotting out where we're going to eat. And I know, I, I love looking forward to a meal. Anyone else? Like just, know, like, okay, two more hours and we're going to get to, you know, Muncie, Indiana, and we're going to find a Chipotle. Praise God. I love anticipating a future meal because this is the point I'm trying to make. Meals matter. I saw my brother-in-law this week. We're going down to visit them in Texas in like six weeks, and he and I were already plotting out where we're going to eat. We're like, let's go here. Let's try this place. Meals matter. And so for us here in the room who are following Jesus, who have given our lives over to the God revealed to us in Jesus, we are brought into a new story, a new narrative. And let me tell you some really good news, my friends. The end of this story will end with a meal that tops all meals. This is where we're heading. Uh, let's read from the prophet Isaiah as he looks and gives us a snapshot into this meal in Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the people a feast of choice meat, a feast with aged wine, prime cuts of choice meat, fine vintage wine. On this mountain, he will swallow up the burial shroud, the shroud over all the peoples, the sheet covering all the nations, where he has swallowed up death once and for all. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. For the Lord has spoken. And on that day it will be said, Look, this is our God. We have waited for him and he has saved us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let's rejoice and be glad in his salvation. This is where we're heading. A future feast with the family of God, choice meat, aged wine, prime cuts, vintage Cabernet Sauvignon. And God, we see, will have his own menu. He will swallow up death once and for all. And this feast will go on with the people who've been found, freed, redeemed, rescued by this good God. This feast is open for all the people. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, different political part partisanship, different musical tastes, different dietary preferences and restrictions. What an incredible vision. No more restrictions, actually. 
So today, guys, what we're going to be looking at is the importance of hospitality in the mission of God. To reunite heaven and earth, to form a diverse yet unified family of sons and daughters rescued from sin and death and brought near by the blood of the Lamb. So what if we were able to see every meal we have as a foretaste of this future feast that we just read about in Isaiah? What if we practice the future now? What if we bring the future into the present, preparing for the real deal each time? We, of course, are focusing our vision this year as a community on learning to love our neighbors, of learning to, to love the people around us like we've been loved. And that's, that's a beautiful endeavor and a beautiful mission to do, but it's going to take some effort and some work, and we're going to go for it together. And um, this story, I think, will help us kind of think through what it looks like to be good neighbors. How can we practice some of this stuff together as, as uh, God's people? Yeah, Welcome. Good to see you. Oh, good. We're just going to pray. Why don't we pray, guys, and then we'll hop into the, the story together. Father, thank you so much for today. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. We ask, Lord, for your spirit to speak through, to, through me to us together this morning, that we would hear your truth, your heart, that we would leave here changed and transformed. Help my scattered mind, Lord, be focused. And uh, we just pray for open hearts and ears to hear the good news of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. Help us feast on your goodness and your abundance even now. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's take a second to locate ourselves in the narrative here. Uh, This meal takes place in the middle of a string of miracles. Remember, Jesus heals a leper, a centurion's son, Peter's mother-in-law. He calms the storm. He delivers two men from demonic oppression. He heals the paralytic and forgives sins. And then there's this meal. It seems kind of out of place, but what's going on here? So let me read again from Matthew 9. And Jesus went on from there. And as he did, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Not hearing this, Jesus said, Hey, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is Matthew sharing his testimony, how he encountered Jesus, the one who's writing this gospel that we're studying together over the next 400 years together here, is telling his story of how God found him, how he rescued him, how his discipleship started. And we see this happen in his normal life. He's at his job and Jesus comes and finds him. He called Matthew and he responds immediately to the call of Jesus. Throughout the gospel, we see Jesus moving towards those we often move away from. The beautiful losers of their time, lepers, Gentiles, the untouchables. And Matthew continues to highlight this theme by throwing his name into the ring. He throws himself in there. Matthew, you see, is a tax collector. He is essentially the morally untouchable. And in the simplest of terms, Matthew is mafia. He is working against his own people for his own selfish gain. He was working with the enemy of the Jews, the Romans. The Jews, you see, were looking for the day when God would finally defeat the Romans and reestablish his kingdom. So it wasn't just, in their minds, Jews versus Romans. It was God versus Romans. 
And the tax collectors had opted for the enemy. They were team Rome. They were traitors to their nation and they were traitors to God. They were God's enemies. And so Jesus calls in this story the least likely, the least desirable, the sick sinners to follow him. Matthew, you see, has done nothing for Jesus to come and offer him this new life. It's not like he's earned this attention or this affection or this approval or this invitation. It's actually the opposite. It's because of God's grace, who he is, that he moves towards someone like Matthew. Jesus, you see, extends the mercy of God to his very enemies. Matthew makes it plain that Jesus is the hero of the story, not himself. His being called has nothing to do with his own righteousness and everything to do with Jesus' generous grace. And what does the recently saved and found tax collector do? He throws a party. He invites Jesus to come eat with him and his group of lost friends. Essentially, you can hear him say, man, you've got to meet this guy. You've got to meet Jesus. We read this, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. So meals matter. And a cultural question in the Judaism of Jesus's day, this is a really important question, with whom can I eat? Essentially doing lunch was doing theology. So especially for like a rabbi, someone who's claiming to teach the way of Yahweh, the other teachers of the law would be looking in and be like, what's this guy up to? What is his theology here? And that's based in who is he eating with? Scott Barchi, a New, a New Testament um, scholar, says this. It would be difficult to overestimate the importance of table fellowship for the culture of the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Meal times were far more than occasion for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship intimacy, and unity. Thus, betrayal or unfaithfulness toward anyone with whom one had shared the table was viewed as particularly reprehensible. And on the other hand, when persons were estranged, a meal invitation opened the way back to reconciliation. Meals matter. So you could imagine the stir Jesus's meal with Matthew and his scoundrelly friends would have caused. Who was he eating with? What good could come of this foolishness? I could hear them saying. He's eating with the enemy. And this is kind of their main thought. He's going to be contaminated by their sin. The Pharisees, the serious ones, know that God's kingdom is going to be a party. That's not their issue. Their issue is who's invited, who's going to be there. But remember what we learned a few weeks ago. For Jesus, it isn't our sin that is contagious. It's actually his holiness that's contagious. There is more holiness in Jesus than there is sin in you and I. So God not be, need not be protected from the impurity of our sin. It's actually the other way around. Our sin is endangered by God's holiness. Amen? What we see in this meal is Jesus bringing the future feast into the present as he sits down with a surprising guest list of people. God in Christ is sitting down and eating with his enemies. God is doing something new that doesn't fit into any of the old categories. God is continuing his work of surprising and breathtaking grace. Undeserved, unmerited, unearned, lavish love. Love that finds us where we are and takes us somewhere new. 
Uh, We say this around here often. God loves us just the way that we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. So the story goes on. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples. It's funny. They don't even go and ask Jesus. They're kind of like, they probably don't even want to go in the room. They're like, tap the nearest guy on the shoulder. Like, what, what is he doing in there? Why does your teacher eat with these people, these tax collectors and these sinners? Why is Jesus eating with these bad people, essentially, is what they're saying. And, the honest, and on, that's an honest question. That's a fair question if we're thinking about it. And, and on hearing this, Jesus says this. He probably overheard them. I was like, hey, let me answer this, buddy. Sit down, Peter. Let me, let me do this. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not for I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. So Jesus begins to answer their question with some common sense. Who needs a doctor? Sick people. My actions aren't as off as you may think, he's saying. You're right, these people are sick, but you're not seeing that I'm actually the one who can make them well. I'm the doctor. No, their sin is not contagious. It's actually my holiness that is contagious. This is why I'm here. Jesus answers the objections and the questions that the Pharisees, the serious ones, pose to him by clarifying what his mission really is. Knowing his audience, the spiritually serious ones, he deepens his stance by referencing the scriptures. And he's referencing the prophet Hosea, Hosea 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 6. Mercy is what I want, not sacrifice. Sacrifice calls for an act of will and for separation from others. Mercy is an act of heart and seeks to identify with others. He's saying, I want heart and not willpower. He's asking for us to show generosity towards actual people, presence, time, patience, dignity, to move toward the mess of humanity and not away from it. It's important to note this, that Jesus, although Jesus did eat with sinners, he never became one. Jesus didn't say to those around his table that they, that they weren't sick. He acknowledged that or that they weren't sinners. But what he's saying is, I'm willing to step into your mess because I want to heal you. I want to make you well. He wants to heal them and make them whole, not just to hang out with them. His willingness to be associated with them seems to soften their hearts to receive the invitation to follow Jesus. And finally, Jesus says, I didn't come to invite good people. I came for bad people. God's grace is the only way outsiders become insiders. Joshua Jip, what a name. He says this, The entire ministry of Jesus is captured in this phrase, divine hospitality to the stranger and sinner. God's hospitality extended to his lost, broken, and often needy and even stigmatized people. This divine hospitality comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ, the divine host who extends God's hospitality to sinners, outsiders, and strangers, and thereby draws us and them into friendship with God. God's embrace of humanity into friendship with him is the ultimate form of welcoming the stranger. It's important for us to remember this, that we were all enemies of God, that we too are sinners saved by grace, just like Matthew, that this is our story, not just his story. Solidarity in our need for mercy, solidarity in our need for forgiveness, solidarity in our own brokenness, solidarity in our helplessness to save ourselves. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, but the good news is that Christ's forgiveness and grace can reach to the deepest, darkest depths of our own rebellion and sin.
This story helps remind us that we are all Matthews. We've been enemies of God, but that Jesus called us to follow him, that he tore down the walls of hostility, that he came to heal us and make us whole, that Jesus comes to free us from separatism, us and them thinking. He comes to include us into the very relationship and divine nature of God. He wants to be one with us. Jesus, we see, is bringing the future reality of the kingdom feast into the present. All peoples, all nations, all faces, and all the earth. You are invited to my party in the new creation, he says. Come as you are. Let me transform you one day at a time. So that's some theology there. I want to, I've been hesitant and reticent lately to kind of be like, hey guys, this is what we're going to do in response. And I think this is an appropriate time to kind of lean into some of this. So this is a beautiful example of what I want us to think about practicing ourselves. And so I want to tell you something. Our God uses our ordinary lives in extraordinary ways if we will let him. He can do some of his best work in some surprising and unimpressive settings. You see, your normal existence actually matters to God. Monday to Saturday, you're eating, you're drinking, you're thinking, you're walking, you're speaking, you're working. All of these become avenues and arenas in which God can flow and work in his mission of the renewal of all things, if you'll let him. We think about this and the announcement of God's kingdom coming. We have to rethink everything. Every single thing we do has to be rethought through the announcement of God's kingdom coming near in Jesus. Things are not as they appear because there are more, there's more going on here than meets the eye. So I want you to take a second. I want you to bring, I've done this before, but I think it's a healthy practice. Bring into your mind the picture of your kitchen table. What does your kitchen table look like? Think about your kitchen table. And I want to say this. Your kitchen table is not just a kitchen table. Your kitchen table is a secret weapon in God's mission of bringing heaven to earth and of the renewal of all things. I want you to think about all the life that is lived around that table. Good, bad, ugly, messy. I remember my mom's table growing up. It was her favorite thing in the whole world. I remember it being speckled with old paint and, you know, when you, we were coloring with Sharpie and we went off the page and there was still some bits of black Sharpie, old guacamole, probably still there. But it lived. It had seen some stuff. Think about the conversations you've had around your table. Hard ones, tearful ones, hopeful ones, happy birthdays, how dare you? the laughter, the life. You have to remember and think everything is an avenue for God's kingdom to come. Tables are a place of connection and your kitchen table is a secret weapon in God's mission because as Alan Hirsch says, sharing meals together on a regular basis is one of the most sacred practices we can engage in as believers. Missional hospitality is a tremendous opportunity to extend the kingdom of God. Listen to this. We can literally eat our way into the kingdom of God. Amen. If every Christian household regularly invited a stranger or a poor person into their home for a meal once a week, we would literally change the world by eating. 
Simon Carey Holt, a theologian and a chef. I don't know how you get that job, but come on. It's good to be reminded that the table is a very ordinary place, a place so routine and everyday that it's easily overlooked as a place of ministry. And this business of hospitality that lies at the heart of Christian mission, it's a very ordinary thing. It is not rocket science, nor is it terribly glamorous. Yet it is the very ordinariness of the table and of the ministry we exercise there that renders these elements of Christian life so important to the mission of the church. Most of what you do as the community of hospitality will go unnoticed and unrecognized. Because at base, hospitality is about providing a space for God's spirit to move. Setting a table, cooking a meal, washing the dishes is the ministry of facilitation. Providing a context in which people feel loved and welcomed and where God's spirit can be at work in their lives. Hospitality is a very ordinary business, but in its ordinariness, we find its real worth. Does that stir you at all? Make you think a bit differently about your kitchen table. These very ordinary things that can become extraordinary when infused by the presence of God. This requires a lot from us in our busy, distracted worlds. If we think about like the point, one distinction I want to make is that entertainment is not the same thing as hospitality. So if you're hearing hospitality and you're thinking about, okay, I need color-coordinated plates, napkins, my children need to be wearing matching clothes. It's more like, hey man, we've got some leftover something, I don't even know what it is, in the fridge. And you can help me fold my laundry if you want to. But come into our life, come into our home. Let's sit, let's talk, let's slow down and be present to you and to God. Um, if you, the thing is, if we can slow down long enough, if you can open your table, the lost can be found. This can, this can happen. The unknown can become known. The disconnected can be reconnected. The outsider can become the insider and the unloved can become loved. This is just at your kitchen table. It's not like you need some master's degree in theology or in public speaking or anything like that. Just sit with me. Let me hear your story. Let me tell you my story. Let me see God in you. Let me call that out in you. Let me pray for you. Let me just laugh with you. Hospitality, the Greek word is phylloxenia, and it means the love of the stranger or the guest. And it is the expression of the welcome of the Father to all through the tangible acts of love, ideally through opening up your home for food, shelter, and relationship. And specifically this, opening up your table to people who are not like you, to people you disagree with, to people who look differently than you do. This is where it gets hard. It's one thing to have your friends over for a meal. It's another thing to have people maybe you disagree with or you don't really know yet or you're growing to love and you're wanting to get there. And this is really the call and what we read about in that story. So meals matter. And it would appear that Matthew is making this the point that in the midst of miracles happening, this meal is somewhat of a miracle itself. Luke's gospel spells out the logic of Jesus this way. Jesus came to seek and save the lost and he came so eating and drinking. Came to do so by eating and drinking. Meals matter. We have to think and, and process this. Hospitality is deeply spiritual and important and significant in God's mission. It's not just preaching from the pulpit or singing worship songs. It is hospitality that also is an avenue for God's kingdom to break in. To hint back at my message from a few weeks ago, we are in a battle 
And our tables can be significant beachheads in God's war with the world, the flesh, and the devil. This is cheesy, but think about your table as, a, as an anchor point, actually. That, that people can come to that, that they can be tethered to that space of being known and seen and loved and heard. That they can encounter the presence of God around your kitchen table. An anchor point for the kingdom of God. I think Matthew positions this story for a significant purpose, that hospitality is something that requires the grace and power of God to actually accomplish well. We see that amidst, you know, delivering someone from demonic oppression, healing people, it's equally difficult to have a meal and genuinely love someone who is different than you. We need help. And God knows this. He's not afraid of this. He's willing and able to help us. So in closing, my, my prayer is that today we would be shown and reminded of the God who moved toward us, who found us in our sin and shame and rebellion and invited us to follow him, that we would remember our inability to save ourselves and celebrate the overwhelming power of God to redeem and rescue even the most broken and far gone. That we would revel and wonder at a Savior who isn't afraid to associate with us in our brokenness, but whose transformative love has the power to bring us into the very life of God. Yes, God loves us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us that way. A God whose grace outpaces and overwhelms our sin. A God who eats with us even when we were his enemies. And that this story would encourage us to invite other people to the table that we would host the presence of Jesus well in our homes, that we would let him do his good work of calling sinners and healing those who are sick. Meaning, yes, physically, but also spiritually. Spiritually poor people are those with nothing to offer for their salvation. The spiritually crippled are those who are made powerless by sin and brokenness. The spiritually blind are those who are unable to see the truth about Jesus. And the spiritually lame are those who are unable to come to God on their own. God wants to encounter all of these people even around your kitchen table. Jesus is calling to us afresh today. In our sin, in our folly, in our self-righteousness, in our rebellion, in our fear, in our failure, in our selfishness, he's calling, hey, follow me. Follow me out of that mess and come have a meal with me. And so in response, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. I'd like us to do two things. Go get him, Audrey. First thing I want us to do is take communion. I want us to think about that, that the table has been prepared for us to come and meet Jesus. That we come, like Matthew and his friends, as sinners who are encountering a gracious and and good God. As you come and take the bread and the cup, I want you to take it back to your seat. And I want you to hold in your mind that picture of the feast that awaits you. The day when God will swallow up death once and for all. That we will sit down together with people from every tribe, nation, and tongue, and we'll celebrate and feast and revel at the God who rescues and redeems and heals and transforms. Practice worship and gratitude and thankfulness together as we take communion. So we're going to come up and grab the bread and the cup, or the bread and the juice, go back to your seat, and we're going to actually take that with the people around you. You're going to like say to one another, hey man, this is the, the body of Christ broken for you. 
the blood of Jesus shed for you. And then what I want us to do is I'd like us to take some time. The music's going to be going, so we're going to just kind of have some space to encounter God. I want us to take some time actually praying for one another. God, empower us with your spirit that we could open up our homes and extend hospitality to those who are far from you. Help us, God. We need his help. So two things. Take communion together and pray for one another that God's spirit would empower us to learn how to practice hospitality. And then we're going to end with some singing, some worship together. So again, it's in summary, come to the table, come feast on Jesus together in small groups, and then pray for one another that we will embody this message and practice bringing the future feast into our homes, around our kitchen tables, and that, that our vision for the family of God would broaden and deepen and continue to reflect the heart of God.